The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, good evening, good evening. How are you guys? All right, excellent. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Matthew tonight. Matthew chapter 18. As we're continuing our series on what it's like to live like Jesus. So tonight, the, the, the topic that I drew is forgive like Jesus. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for several weeks now, being able to come and share with you. I have to be honest, though, I think I have more notes than I have time. So uh, to the best of my ability, I'm going to try and condense uh, really important truths uh, to really bite-sized pieces uh, to the best of my ability. So in light of that, would you, would you bow your heads one more time with me as we pray? Father, as we come to your word, we recognize the warnings that are contained in it. How you tell us in the book of James that it is not your will for us to be hearers only, but God also to be doers. That we can't be like the person who wakes up in the morning and sees his reflection in the mirror, knows that everything is messed up, and then walks away and makes no change, does nothing with that information. As we behold your righteous and holy and perfect standard for our life. In the reflection of your Son as recorded in your word, and as we compare our hearts and our lives with that image, Lord, highlight those things in us that need to change. We ask, Holy Spirit, right now, that you would be searching and plumbing the depths of our heart to bring to the surface anything that needs to be dealt with, Lord. Anything in our hearts that you desire to work through. And I pray, Father, that the power of your Spirit would be at work in us. That we might leave here freer than when we came in. So, Lord, have your way. Work your will. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I grew up country. Now, some of you guys think country, you think like straw hats and, you know, hillbilly-isms. My kind of country is like more uh, backwoods than that. Uh, my family has its roots in Oklahoma. They made their way east, finally settled in Fresno area. Uh, if anybody's from California and knows what Fresno's like, it's not a, not a super pleasant area. But lots of former, uh, farmers and, and orchards around there. And then they made their way eventually to Oregon. And I can remember my grandma, Juanita. She was as oaky as they get. Uh, I, I don't think I ever saw her outside of a flower pattern muumuu. You guys know what those 
if, if you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about. All the, all the grandmas from my generation, at least the ones that I knew, uh, wore these flower pattern mumus that were just like a around the house type of wear. And then every once in a while on Sunday, she would dress up and you know, we would go to church together at this Baptist church that, that we attended when I was a small child. I, I remember a few things about my grandma. I remember you know, some of the pleasant things, but what I remember a lot from my, my grandmother was her bitterness. It was something that settled over our families. It was, a, it was like this cloud that sort of hung that you always knew you, you wanted to stay on the right side of grandma because she had this, this sharp tongue and she couldn't hold it back. It was, the, the graces of politeness had faded with her age. The ability to sort of hide or suppress what, was fe- what she was feeling on the inside that, that ability had diminished with time, and uh, she became a person who, if you started a conversation with her, inevitably, it would end up negative, and inevitably, it would end up talking about somebody else. Ever know anybody like that? I can remember at one particular juncture, it was after my grandmother had died. We're talking probably a good seven or eight years. I was in my teen years. And there was some family division on my mother's side between my parents and uh, my aunt, my mother's sister. And so it was around the holidays, and everybody's wanting to get together, but, you know, there's like this weird family tension, and we're like, well, are we going over there for Christmas? Are we not going over there? We've been doing that the whole time, but can we go over there and be fake? And, you know, there's all this drama over, like, how are we going to manage this family conflict, Right? And my, my cousin, Brian, he's a horseshoer. He's country as it gets. He comes on over, and, and he sits down with my parents. He says, hey, I want to talk to you. And we all knew what was happening, right? He, this was the, the negotiation to try and make peace so that we could actually have a nice holiday and the kids could open presents and it wouldn't be you know, like an all-out brawl at Christmas time celebrating our Savior. I know that you guys can't relate. Maybe you've read stories like this. Perhaps you've known really terrible families that have this kind of thing happen. But, but this was the predicament we were in. And my cousin Brian, he comes over, and, and he, he, rather than starting to talk about the issues, he said, hey, can I tell you a story? He said, I knew, I knew this old lady who always carried a backpack. You see her hitchhiking on the, on the side of the road, and she always had this backpack on. And anytime somebody would do something wrong, anytime somebody would hurt her in some way or offend her in some way, she would pick up a rock and write the offense on that rock, and then she would stuff it in her backpack. And this continued on for years and years until one day they found her dead, crushed under the weight of all of the rocks that she carried. Now, without naming her and without saying who that person was, we knew. It was my grandmother. It was Grandma Juanita. Have you ever known somebody bitter? Somebody who cannot let go of a hurt. 
who cannot let go of an offense. And you just see them over the years. The offenses build, and they build, and they build. And the weight that they carry gets so heavy that it's crushing to them. Ever known anybody like that? The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that we should beware lest there be any root of bitterness that springs up among us. Now, I I came across that scripture as I'm, I'm thinking about the issue of forgiveness. I'm like, root of bitterness, where does that come from? Like, why is that there? Have you ever wondered that? Like, where, is there some, you know, bitter root that you can get? Maybe it's like wormwood or something like that, and you, you get it, you bite into it, and you're like, ah, oh, this is terrible. Is that, is that where the expression comes from? Well, it turns out it's, it's rooted in Scripture. It's, it's a throwback to the book of Deuteronomy. So keeping a, keeping a thumb right here in Matthew 18, or pull that little ribbon down in Matthew 18, let's, let's just take a look. I want you to see something. Deuteronomy chapter 29. The children of Israel are about to enter into the promised land, and there is a warning being given to them by Moses. He's preparing them to enter into all that God has promised to them. And in verse 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 29, he says this, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe, so it can be individuals or it can be groups of people who feed off of this, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What does that mean? Well, he he explains it to us, the next verse. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, the covenant of God to to bless his people as they come under his authority and are led by him, blesses himself in the stubbornness of, uh, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. And the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. In this passage here, he says, look out, don't let this root that brings bitter and, and a terrible fruit spring up. And, and, and you begin to think, well, it's been hard serving the Lord, so I get a gimme. When I get into the land that, that God has promised, I, I just, you know, I don't have to submit and surrender everything to him, just, just bits and pieces. And I can serve these idols over here, and I can allow this over there, and, 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 and it's okay. And the Lord says, uh 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 I get all of you. Every bit of you. Don't let that bitter root begin to take over in your heart. Because I want all of you. With that in mind, let's turn back to our passage in Matthew chapter 18. 
and consider what the word of the Lord is for us tonight regarding forgiveness. Guarding against the tendency to to allow ourselves to have some area of our heart that is not in submission to God. Starting this very thing, as we begin to explore this, we're starting out with this open heart to say, I am not going to allow some place in my life, some place in my heart to not be surrendered to the authority of God. He has to have all of me. I can't give him just part. Matthew 18 Beginning in verse 21, Jesus and the disciples are hanging out. And then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times. Excuse me, but seven times, 70. No, I read that wrong again. But I I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Not just, okay, you can work for me and pay it back, but he just flat out forgave him. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, I I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in the prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So here's where we're headed in our discussion of forgiveness. First, we're going to talk about the conundrum of forgiveness. The conundrum of forgiveness. And then, the cost of forgiveness. The cost of forgiveness, verses 23 to 27. Third, the crisis of forgiveness, verses 28 to 34. And then the call to forgiveness in verse 35. So the conundrum of forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, the crisis of forgiveness, and the call 
to forgiveness. So, tackling our first one, the conundrum of forgiveness. As the story opens up here in verses 21 through 22, Peter comes up and asks Jesus what seems on the outside like a very simple question. And in my mind, what I imagine here is Peter thinks that he's being very generous. He comes to Jesus, he's like, okay, so if you have somebody who keeps offending you, I mean, keeps doing stuff that's wrong, how many times should you forgive him? And Peter's thinking in his mind, let's put a number on this. Three is better than I really want to do. Four is I'm getting more holy. Five is the number of grace, and that's, that's, that's great. Six, uh, let's reach for seven. Seven times, he says to Jesus. <laughs> and then he says, no, 77 times. Uh, what? <clears throat> Perhaps maybe you didn't understand my question. Uh, somebody keeps hurting you. Seven seems generous to me. 77? How often? How often should we forgive? How, how much offense should we suffer? Here's the conundrum with forgiveness. It doesn't end. There's no cap on it. Now, now Peter thinks he's being very generous, and maybe some of you in here might think, oh, I'm... I'm fine with forgiving people. You know, five, six, seven, ten, maybe 20 times. But if somebody offends me 30 times, I I don't know if I'm going to forgive them. What's your limit? What's the number you would have offered to Jesus? And, And how would you have felt in this moment if Jesus' response to you was, Ten times whatever number you offered. You offer up ten, he says a hundred. You offer up a hundred. He says a thousand. The number just kind of keeps climbing. How, How would you feel in that moment? Would you feel like Jesus doesn't understand how the offense affects you? Would you feel like surprised by his answer? Would you feel like, like maybe he doesn't care about your heart in some way or doesn't understand the hurt that you're, you're bearing and, and think maybe he doesn't get fairness or justice? When Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, But 77 times, I can't help but think that Peter was rocked by that. I would lose count after 10. You know what I mean? 
I would just know, okay, this is, you have hurt me in the same way again and again and again. In this. The point is, it's, it's beyond your ability to keep track. You just keep forgiving, and it doesn't end. It just keeps going. And you want to think in your head that there is some level, there's a, there's a meter running somewhere. And that meter is, is slowly climbing. It's the forgiveness meter in my relationship with whoever. And, and, and then once it hits the, the top here, once the, the thermometer is full, well, then I'm no longer obligated any longer to forgive. Isn't that a conundrum? <laughs> I mean, when you think about dealing with relationships in your life in that way? Doesn't that sound like it's too much to bear? Too much to do. I think, I think Peter was probably feeling that way as well. And so Jesus clarifies with this, this story. And he, he begins to break down the cost of forgiveness. Verses 23 to 27 he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, there was one brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. He owes him a lot of money. It's worth more than his life. It's worth everything he owns and the lives of each of the members of his family. It's a tremendous cost. And somebody has to pay that debt. Somebody has to get rid of it. The debt doesn't just disappear. You see, if, if the master of the household says, okay, I, I'm just going to forgive the debt, then who pays the debt? The master does. If the servant says, no, I'm going to pay the debt, then he has to pay the debt. But the debt doesn't just disappear. The debt is real. It's occurred, and it doesn't, it's not just a figment of the imagination. Somebody has to pay it. There is a real cost for forgiveness. Someone has to pay. It's either the servant or the master, or as we are talking about forgiveness, it is either the offender or the offended. You see, when somebody wrongs you, when there is a hurt, there is a real cost for that debt. There is a real cost for that offense. And either the offender will pay it, or the offended will pay it. The cost for the offender is relational right? Trust has been broken. And now when you look at the offender, you know there's, there's this thing that is between us. It's this barrier. And I don't know about the offender anymore. I, I don't know what is in his heart. There's obviously a capacity for selfishness at my expense. Trust has been broken. Now I look at them with a sort of question mark hanging over the top of their heads, and I'm wondering, are you going to hurt me again? Will this keep going? Is this the only time? It's also restitutional. 
Sometimes when, when a hurt occurs, it's not just relational, and then that trust has been broken and the relationship has been damaged, but it's restitutional as well. Sometimes when a husband hurts a wife, he goes to jail. Rightly so. When a murder occurs, you, you get forgiveness, but you go to prison. If you're a politician and a sex scandal comes out, that you molested a 14-year-old girl, yeah, there is forgiveness, but there also should be a prison sentence that goes with that. Because it's wrong. There's restitution to be made. So there is, there's a cost to the offender, but there's a cost to the offended as well. There, there's the hurt that is gathered. You know, now all of a sudden the world is suspect and this person is suspect. And when am I going to get hurt again? And you sort of begin to take on this sort of paranoid stance of like, okay, where's the next punch coming? Trust has been broken, and, and, and now you're looking at that person and, and the rest of the world around you wondering if it is a safe place for you at all. You see, it costs relationships, doesn't it? When there's an offense, it costs relationships. It does real damage. The question is, who pays the debt who pays it? It's very interesting here. In Jesus' parable, it is the master that is willing to bear the cost of the offense. It's the master who takes that upon himself, and he does so at great cost to himself. It's the master who sets the pace for forgiveness. He goes, okay, I'm going to take all the debt. All of it. The debt that, that really has affected you and me personally. It's affected you and your wife and your kids and everything that you own. It has encompassed your entire life. It has wrapped up everything. I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to absorb that myself. It's the master of the household who does that. A clear point to the gospel. And the fact that God, as our master, is willing to absorb our great debt, all of our offenses. He says in his own heart, if you will, someone has to pay the debt. I'll do it. Let it be me. I'll absorb the cost. How does unforgiveness affect us? How does it shape us? Well, it shapes us in multiple ways. We, we saw the cost, absolutely. But the, even more than that, as you begin to break that down, you, you find that unforgiveness affects us on multiple levels. And, and the results are that if unforgiveness, first of all, locks us in. It locks us in. We become the prisoner 
of our own need to make someone else pay. There's an old adage that's been said a bunch of times. It's one of my favorites. I find myself quoting it a lot. That unforgiveness is like swallowing poison and waiting for someone else to die. You see, when we don't forgive, whose heart is affected? Ours. It's us. We become the prisoner. It locks us in. It isolates us against connecting with others. It causes us to live in fear and paranoia of when we're going to get hurt again. We are, in an essence, the walking wounded. We've got this wound that is continuously bleeding. And, it, and we can't seek help for it, and we won't seek help for it. We just continue to let it bleed, and it begins to drain every area of our life. It drains our emotional energy, our physical energy, our spiritual energy. Unforgiveness locks us in. Unforgiveness breaks us down. It breaks us down. Our emotional health suffers. In what way? Well, the studies are, are too numerous to even quote. Depression, bitterness, resentment, control issues. All of these are the results of unresolved, deep-seated unforgiveness and bitterness. When, when we hold on to things, it, it, it focuses our attention on the things that are broken in life. And, and that downward spiral leads emotionally to a place where we become very unhealthy. We begin to focus on what is wrong and what is broken, and we cannot see what is good. It's like we're looking through a lens that, that blocks out the rest of the world and focuses us only on what is wrong. And depression is the result. Bitterness, resentment, control issues. Here's another one. Uh, the emotional outworking of unforgiveness causes us to control others so we don't get hurt again. Boundary issues in relationships develop. A, 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 a girl who is abused grows up and she gets married. And when she gets married, all of a sudden, she's like, I, my heart is vulnerable again, and I, I could get hurt in this. And so what I need to do is make sure that nothing can possibly hurt me again. And so I'm going to make sure that this person does this thing and that this relationship is kept in this compartment and that these things don't touch over here. And they control everything that is happening around them and the pieces of their shattered life for years and years and years are being affected because of one root. They can't let go of the offense. Our emotional health suffers as it breaks us down. Our physical health suffers. Heart disease, autoimmune disorders, adrenal fatigue high levels of cortisol doing damage throughout the entire body. Our spiritual health suffers. Why? Because there's something that God is saying, I want to resolve this in you. 
I want to heal this. I want to work in this. You don't have to be enslaved like this. Anymore. Let me open the door for you. Come out of the prison that you've created. Get out of there. Come on. It's an open invitation. And in order to hold on to your unforgiveness, what do you have to do? You have to say, no, Lord. Not here. Not this. I'm holding this. Unforgiveness locks us in. Unforgiveness breaks us down. It affects our emotional health, our physical health, and our spiritual health. And unforgiveness narrows our vision. We become so locked in on making someone pay that we deny the grace that God has given us. And we refuse to see that God's goal is for us all to be gathered to heaven. All of us. How? Through his forgiveness. Through his grace. You see, here's the deal, guys. We all want justice, don't we? We want what is right. What, we want those debts to be paid, don't we? Of course we do. Absolutely we do. For everyone else except us. You see, when we get to heaven, we're going to be shoulder to shoulder with one another. Right? Why are we there? Around the throne, lifting up praises, listening to the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why are we there? Because such a great debt of sin, so many offenses, offenses without number, have been forgiven by the grace of God. But in this life, when we live in unforgiveness, we can't see God's eternal plan. We can't even hope in it because to hope in it means that that person over there might be forgiven. They might be standing next to me, shoulder to shoulder, before the same throne, receiving the same grace. And I want grace for me. I just don't want it for them. I want justice for them. <laughs> and this brings us then to the crisis of forgiveness, the crisis of forgiveness, verses 28 through 34. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. As the parable unfolds, here's the crisis, the question that is at the center. How in the world can this servant, who has been give, forgiven so much, how in the world can he hold on to a debt that is so little in comparison to how much he's been forgiven? It doesn't make any sense. And immediately we're like, yeah, absolutely. He was just forgiven everything. How can he hold on to this little offense? Isn't that a crisis for us? I mean, right now, think about it. Where are the relationships broken in your life? Who owes you? 
Where is that debt? Now, let, let's make a comparison chart, okay? Let's stack up their offense on one side of the scale, okay? Then your offenses against God on the other side of the scale. Which one weighs more? And yet, don't you feel the need to hang on to that offense? Don't you feel it? Don't you feel the weight of that crisis? Why is it so hard to forgive? Why is it so hard? Well, the answer is because it's a wound. An offense against us is a hurt. Sometimes to our body, sometimes to our souls, sometimes to our spirit. Sometimes the offender is somebody who is alive and present and we can see them. And sometimes the offender has long since been gone. Sometimes the, sometimes the offender is somebody we're close to. And sometimes the offender is somebody who's far away. But the wound is still a wound. You know, here's the thing. We are made for survival. When God has wired us in pretty amazing ways, the, the problem is, is, is that that system that is made for survival gets hijacked. Because, of, because we're wired for survival, the need to self-protect causes us to live with a sort of paranoia towards anything similar or any pain that is similar to what we've encountered in life. And so when a, a hurt happens, when, an, uh, when it happens physically, right, like I, I touch a hot stove, I, my body remembers, ow, that hurt. So the next time I'm around something that is hot and I feel the heat from it, my hand immediately, reflexively jerks back in self-protection. Well, our hearts, the inside of us is made the same way. And when you get hurt early on, little in life, and you don't have good tools for how to cope with that or understand that, and the parts of your brain that are, that are still developing and still um, being grown into a place where you can rationally think through how something made you feel and think about a response and are equipped with tools on how to handle those things, those things aren't present. And when that happens, you carry that wound for a long time. You carry it into your adult life. You carry it into marriage. Sometimes you don't even realize how deeply you're wounded until you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or way at the end of your life. You see, this paranoia that happens is a reflexive action of the soul. It's a drawing away to not get hurt again. And, and, and what happens is we find ourselves hyper-attuned to anything that feels the same or affects us in the same way. It causes a reflex 
of control in our hearts. And we control and hold on to the offense and keep it vivid in our minds and we keep it present in our lives so that we can self-protect and not be hurt in the same way again. And when that process gets hijacked, the wound becomes paralyzing. It hinders our ability to function in healthy ways in the present relationships that we have and the present distresses that we face. Why? Because we're not reacting to what's happening. We're reacting to what has happened. It's a wound. And it's an evil. There's something in us that consents its author. There's something in us that knows it's not supposed to hurt like this. I'm not supposed to feel this way. There's an immediate rejection in our soul that is saying relationships aren't supposed to work like this. Friendships aren't supposed to hurt like this. We can sense that it is contrary to how God made us. And our hearts rebel against the pain that is caused to us by others and by the offenses. We know that it's a rebellion against God that has caused it. And there's a part of us that says, this is not right. There needs to be righteousness. There is an evil that has occurred. It's not just that it's a wound. It's that it's wrong that it happened. And thirdly, it's an injustice. You see, we weren't made for a place that was broken, were we? Keeping a finger here, would you flip over to Romans chapter 8 with me? Verse 18. Romans chapter 8, probably one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, talking about sort of the benefits package of the believer. And Paul writes this in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's what he's saying. Intuitively, in all of us, is a desire for wholeness. And when things are broken, we feel it. It's like, it's like blinking lights on the dashboard of our life, saying something's broken, something's wrong. It's that inward thing that begins to work in us by the will of God. It, what, what, what 
Paul calls futility. We've been subjected unto futility. There's this sense of emptiness in the world and brokenness in the world that brings us to a place where we're like, we just want it to be right. We just want it to be better. We want it to be whole and mended and healed. And that sense that is in us, that we were created for a world like that, leads us, when an offense has occurred, to see it not just as a hurt or a wound, and not just as an evil, but as an injustice that needs to be made right. That there needs to be justice. Why? Because our hearts long for rightness. They long for justice. They long for wholeness. God has made us in that fashion. It is his will to deliver on those promises. But while the world is broken and while relationships are still influenced by sin, we feel the wound. We see the evil. We sense the injustice. And so there's the crisis. What will we do? I can't help but think that the servant in our story here, this parable, the the, the parable that Jesus gives, that he felt the amazing grace of his master when his debt was completely forgiven. And then he's outside of the house and he's walking in the street and he sees that fellow servant over there and he goes, oh, oh. Dirt bag. Oh, hey, come on over here. Immediately, you see the shame in the other guy's eyes. He doesn't want to make eye contact. Oh, great, I didn't want to run into him here. And they start walking towards him, grabs him by the coat, shakes him. Hey, give me my, give me my money. You owe me, remember? You've been putting me off and putting me off and putting me off and not paying your debts. He's so locked in on this present thing. There is a crisis in his life, and he doesn't even see it. To to take offense to this small debt is to do injustice to the great grace that he's been given. You see, that's the crisis for us, isn't it? To take offense to the small debt to do injustice to the great grace that God has given us. So Jesus sums up this passage with the command of forgiveness, verse 35. So he finishes up the parable. He finishes off with this one singular verse that should stab each and every one of us to the very heart of our being. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. What what do you mean, so also? He said the guy who didn't forgive his brother was cast into prison and he was made to pay physically through beatings every last bit of the debt that he owed. He would have to suffer for it all. Now, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you If you do not forgive your brother. Now, here's the thing. I would love it if the verse stopped there. You know why? 
because I'm religious. Oh, man. Okay, you want me to forgive? All right, I forgive you. I forgive you. You're forgiven. I can do that. I can do that all day long. I, I grew up doing that. But that's not where the verse stops, is it? What's the very next phrase say? If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, you have to really let go of it. Here's the command. Jesus commands. Listen, Jesus commands. Hear me. Jesus commands forgiveness. There is no loophole. There is no secret place where you can find a way to justify it. He commands it. You see, Jesus taught it all throughout his ministry. Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, right? You have to forgive or your heavenly Father will not forgive you. He says it straight up. He says it right here. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. It says, he says that forgiveness takes precedence over Worship, like if you come to the altar and you realize there's a conflict between you and your brother, lay your worship down. Don't make your sacrifice to me and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship me. He modeled it. He modeled it with the paralytic man in Matthew chapter 9, Luke 5. When he says to the man before he heals him, my son, your sins are forgiven you. He modeled it with the woman who anoints the feet of Jesus. He says to the Pharisee who was present, she loves me much because she has been forgiven much. He modeled it in John 8 with a woman caught in the adultery when he said, neither do I condemn you. Then Jesus purchased it. Remember, remember what John the Baptist said? He says that he, he, John the Baptist's ministry was to preach the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And then he sees Jesus come up, right? And, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Forgiveness, it's right there. He's walking around. He's about to get in the tub with me. Then, at the Last Supper, Jesus prepares a special meal for his friends, and he says, oh, I've longed to eat this meal with you, and, and he holds up the cup, and he says, this blood, or this cup, is, is the blood of the new covenant that I make with you. It is the blood poured out for forgiveness of sins, Matthew 26, 28. It's displayed in his life on the cross as he is beaten and, and, and crucified and hanging there and being mocked. And he looks down on the crowd who offends them and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He purchased it. And then he commanded it. He commanded it. In the preaching of the gospel in the Great Commission, Luke chapter 24, verse 47 it says that everywhere that you go, you're going to be preaching the gospel and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. He commanded 
that it's a part of our message, that it also is alive in us, proclaimed by us, and lived out through us. It's seen again in the epistles. You hear it in the preaching of the, of the pastoral epistles and, um, and also the epistles to the churches. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. It's exemplified in the book of Philemon where Paul says, whatever he has done to you, charge it to my account. Forgive him. I just want you to outright forgive Onesimus. So we just see that Jesus taught it, he modeled it, he purchased it, he commanded it for believers. Guys, there is no loophole for us. There is none. So what is it? What is forgiveness? What does it actually look like to forgive? You ever wondered that? I think sometimes something is best defined by what it isn't rather than what it is. So let me break this down for you. What forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not approving of or diminishing sin. Forgiveness is not enabling a sin. That doesn't mean that you just let bad stuff continue to happen. You don't enable it. Forgiveness is not denying a wrongdoing. You're not saying, hey, actually, that, that was okay that you did that. That was no big, no big deal. It's not waiting for an apology because sometimes, guys, the person who has offended you can't apologize, won't apologize. Sometimes they're not even alive to apologize. Forgiveness is not forgetting. You can't do that. You'll always remember that wound. The difference between an open wound and a scar is totally different, though. A wound hurts when you touch it. A scar's been healed, right? It doesn't hurt the same way. And when you've forgiven healing begins and it begins to hurt less and less as you let go it's not forgetting forgiveness is not ceasing to feel the pain forgiveness is not a one-time event it's not like you go oh i forgive you and then you never have to deal with it again it keeps coming up doesn't it the offense keeps poking at us and, and and trying to get at our hearts but we say okay i know what to do with this when it comes up i know where to file that I'm calling that forgiven, paid for. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It is not neglecting justice. Some people get forgiveness and justice. We talked about that. Forgiveness is not trusting. doesn't mean that you allow somebody to continue to have access to your heart so they can continue to damage you. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. It doesn't mean that the relationship is repaired. It can still be broken, but you are making a choice about what to do with the offense. Now, here's the thing. This is not a list that lets us off the hook. It it narrows the focus and helps us to define what it is that we're actually doing. So what forgiveness actually is. It's three things. It's an act of compassion. Forgiveness is easier, you see, when we realize how much we've been forgiven by Christ. We, who is, he who has been forgiven much loves much. We extend the forgiveness that we receive, right? So it's an act of compassion. I recognize that the person who hurt me is in the same condition as me, that we're sinners, that we're broken, that we choose things that are stupid and foolish and hurtful. We go, okay, I'm just like you. God's let go of my offense. I'm going to let go of yours. It's an act of release. 
It's an act of compassion. It's an act of release. Forgiveness is leaving the final results up to God and letting go of the instant need for justice. We have to let go of the control. Forgiveness is the releasing of emotional guilt that you place on another person. It's the choice that we make that happens in the heart. It's, it's not the release of responsibility or an absence of, of healthy boundaries, but it is a conscious choice to remove the right to get even from the person who injured you. It is a release of anger and the right to hold a grudge. We allow God to make repayment for transgression. And thirdly, it's an act of faith. Forgiveness is being unwilling to sit on Jesus' throne. We're trusting him. We're not going to usurp the right that only he has as judge. Only he can weigh the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Only he can see what caused the offense. Only he knows all the variables. And I take myself off the throne of God and I allow Jesus to sit there, the righteous judge. It's an act of faith. You're making a choice to trust God with the one who hurt you. We have no power to change others. God alone has the power to weigh the heart and to change the heart. This time I'm going to have Sam come up. and He's going to lead us in about 10 minutes of worship. Up at the communion table is this piece of paper right here. On the front, there are questions on this side right here. These questions are meant for you to ask in your own heart with reflection, with a heart of saying, God, search me. If you put your finger on something, some area of my heart, my life that is not submitted and surrendered to you, I want to give it to you. Now, today, there's no loophole for me. So I want you to ask these questions here. And then if you flip it over on the back, there's just a quick little exercise to lead you through the act of proclaiming forgiveness for wrongs suffered. You have a wonderful opportunity. You get to do this today at the table of the Lord. Isn't it an interesting thing that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he asked for forgiveness, not for himself, but for somebody else. He wasn't the person who was wrong. They were. And yet he said, Father, you're the judge of all the earth. Give them grace. Forgive them. You see, forgiveness is our freedom. When we release the hurt and anger, it is our own burden that we drop, our own barrier that we demolish. Relationships move forward. Friendships deepen. Marriages are made whole. guy named Bernard Meltzer once put it this way when you forgive you in no way change the past but you sure do change the future forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and finding out that the prisoner was you amen father shepherd your people lead them in this time of worship we pray in the name of Jesus Amen. Would you do business with Jesus?